are listening to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. In this episode, we will be sharing the audio from a previous webinar hosted as part of the iConnect webinar series. Each of these webinars has been delivered by a healthcare professional sharing their experience. Webinar recordings are available for viewing at www.ivtherapymadesimple.ca. Welcome, everyone. My name is Nicole Kupchick, and I am going to get started today where we are going to chat about the topic of our fluids drugs. I'm going to try to convince you to think about fluid as a drug and to not just haphazardly, willy-nilly administer fluids. And, you know, another thing I think we should be questioning is this whole idea of a TKO, or maybe you call it a rider, or just administering fluid at a slow rate for no really good apparent reason. So a little bit about myself. My name is Nicole Kupchik. I'm from Seattle, Washington. I'm a clinical nurse specialist or an advanced practice nurse. I have led a code blue committee. I've been the chair and a sepsis coordinator. I am in, uh, do a lot of expert consulting now, and um, I've been the author of six certification and review books. I've published numerous papers on various topics in critical care. I'm also the contributing editor to the American Journal of Nursing uh, and write a column called ECG Strip Savvy. And I'm also a national and international speaker, but what might be most interesting to you is I'm married to a Canadian. Yes, I am. <laughs> so the objectives uh, for this session is we're gonna talk about the latest research to support fluid choice in different types of resuscitation. I'm gonna focus more on sepsis type resuscitation. We're talking about the concept of fluid responsiveness in a hypotensive patient and the consequences of fluid over resuscitation or fluid overload in the hospitalized patient because it has severe, significant consequences. I'm gonna change from the title of our fluids drugs to a statement saying, I believe fluids are drugs. In the same way that you would dose insulin based on a glucose or that you would titrate like norepinephrine or something like dopamine to a patient's blood pressure, I also feel like fluid administration and fluid boluses should be titrated based on what the patient's heart is going to do with that fluid. Meaning, are they fluid responsive? And I'm gonna talk about what that means and how you would assess that in just a little bit. So some questions to ask about fluid is, when should you give fluid? Which fluid should you give? And I'm gonna go over the latest research around that. How much fluid should we give? And when should we stop giving fluid? Because I don't know about you, but everywhere I've ever worked, we uh, take, I don't wanna say take great pride, but it's almost kind of become commonplace to turn patients into the Michelin men or Michelin women and fluid over resuscitate them. So I think we really need to get away from that. So how important is this whole topic of fluid administration? Well, there is an international fluid academy to support it. And um, I have to say, I am personally not a card member, card carrying member of the uh, International Fluid Academy, but I highly, do, I do highly recommend that you follow them and uh, support the organization. They're doing a lot of great work and research on just the topic of fluid resuscitation and fluid administration. I think it's really, really important. Um, so kind of just 
big picture fluid. So as an FYI, the new sepsis guidelines are going to be published at the beginning of 2021. So I'm really excited to see if maybe they make a stronger recommendation that we should be using stroke volume to guide fluid resuscitation. But the, in the 2016-2017 surviving sepsis campaign guidelines, uh, they recommended that we start with 30 mils per kg of crystalloid in the first three hours of recognition of recognition recognition, sorry, of sepsis. And then that later um, in 2018 got kind of bumped up to say start as soon as possible in the hypotensive or hypoperfused patient. Now, what's interesting, so in the United States, the um, CMS, which is basically uh, the group that pays Medicare bills, um, the governmental group um, suggested that you could also use the ideal or predicted body weight to dose fluid if the BMI was over 30. And this came from a lot of feedback from providers at the bedside who are identifying, you know, we are really over resuscitating a lot of these patients, especially in the setting of obesity. Let's first chat about type of fluid, because I think this is super important. You always need to know why you give what you give, right? And one of the hypotheses that's kind of been generating over, I'd say, the last decade is that maybe saline isn't so normal. And you might be like, what? Saline, like the holy grail. Maybe not though, right? Uh, but uh, Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, published two big studies in 2018 asking the question, is there harm in giving saline? Their hypotheses that were that saline would, one, lead to increased mortality, and two, lead to increased incidence of acute kidney injury. So they conducted these studies in both the ICU um, group of patients and non-critically ill patients. The SALT-ED study was a study that was conducted in non-critically ill patients where they enrolled over 13,000 patients comparing saline to lactated ringers or plasmolite A, again, in non-critically ill. Now, when I show you the or when I mention the results, keep in mind that the median amount of fluid administered to non-critically ill patients in the study was only a little bit over a liter. Now, the SMART study was conducted in critically ill patients, and they evaluated over 15,000 patients. So you can see between the two studies, almost 30,000 patients here, again, comparing saline to balanced fluids, which include lactated ringers and plasma IA in critically ill. The median fluids administered to this group was a little bit um, over two and a half liters. About a third of the patients were mechanically ventilated, and about a quarter of these patients were on vasopressors. Um, and this was conducted at five uh, different sites in five different ICUs within the Vanderbilt system. And what did they find? Well, they didn't find a higher mortality in general across the spectrum. However, in both studies, they identified that saline led to a statistically significant increase in kidney injury events which is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And you, um, you know that there, it takes a lot of resources uh, to do dialysis on patients. And then the long-term downstream effects are, are pretty massive for both the patient, but also the healthcare system. Now, within the SMART trial, remember that was the trial that evaluated critically ill patients, one of the things they identified was that in the septic patient population, there was definite benefit to balanced fluids, i.e. LR and plasma IA. And so what they did, 
um, after identifying this was a secondary analysis that was published in 2019, where they asked the question, hmm, in these septic patients, was there actually a mortality difference? And what they found was, yes, there was. There was a mortality difference that was statistically significant between the patients who got balanced crystalloid versus those who got saline. The mortality was higher in the saline group. So in the septic patient population, there was a mortality difference and a higher incidence of acute kidney injury if patients re received saline versus balanced fluids, LR and plasmolite A. Super interesting findings. So why are we questioning fluid type? Because you're like, we've been giving saline for gazillions of years. Why change now? Well, there's a lot of issues with saline. Um, so are all fluids created equal? And I would argue no. So in saline, so just a couple little FYIs. In saline, now how many of you read the paragraph on your IV fluid? Said no nurse, doctor, pharmacist, NP, said no one, right? Nobody does. But interestingly, if you look at the composition of saline, there is a heck of a lot of sodium in saline. In fact, there's about 900 milligrams for every 100 ml. So a liter of saline contains about nine grams of sodium. That's a lot of sodium. It's the equivalent to a lot of little bags of Lay's potato chips. And I actually did the comparison and calculated this out. And there is a ton of sodium in normal saline. And I'm going to challenge you not to call it normal ever again because of some of these findings. But actually, it's not the sodium that's causing, I mean, sodium causes issues. But the main issue is the chloride that's in saline. So if you look at the composition of saline versus LR versus plasmolite A, you could see there is a heck of a lot more chloride in saline versus LR or plasmolite A. And we think that the hyperchloremia that patients develop in the setting of big saline administrations is leading to kidney injury. So are, you know, are we using the right fluid when we use saline? And I would argue no. And look at the pH of saline, 5.5 versus 6.75 in LR versus 7.4 with plasmolite A. The osmolality is a bit higher uh, with saline versus LR and plasmolite A. And you can see it contains a heck of a lot more sodium. So the sodium and chloride, specifically the chloride we hypothesize is leading to acute kidney injury. So in sepsis, fluid choice definitely matters. So the next thing we ask is how do you know if your patient even needs fluid? Because gosh knows we give a lot of it, right, in hospitals. Um, so let's talk about our first our, our, our patient here. We've got a 58-year-old uh, patient who's got a productive cough, fever, and chills. They present to triage in the emergency department, and they've got a heart rate that's clipping along pretty fast. Um, they've got, here I'm going to just uh, highlight my laser pointer here, but they've got... Um, uh, a map of 62, which is kind of on that hypoperfused borderline. They're breathing 16 with pneumonia, always breathing 16, right? Eye roll. Uh, but, you know, I'm a 16er. Maybe you're an 18er. Patient was probably actually breathing 28, but whatever. Um, SATs were 91%, uh, so the patient was placed on a four liter cannula. The temperature is 38.6, so the patient is febrile, and they're really drowsy and difficult to keep attention. So based on this, what would you like to do? So the patient definitely meets 
a couple of surge criteria. Uh, they've got a fast heart rate. They likely have a fast respiratory rate, but they also have a high temperature. And then they've got increasing oxygen needs with a blood pressure that's borderline hypoperfused. So what do you want to do? And we're going to do what we always do, right? We're going to get some cultures, give some IV antibiotics, and start fluid administration. So we ended up, the patient weighed 80 kilos, 30 mils per kilo is the recommendation. So we gave about two and a half liters of fluid over an hour. We chose lactator ringers, got IV antibiotics started, and the cultures are now pending. So repeat vitals, heart rate's up to 120. The MAP is 60, so that's definitely hypoperfused. Uh, now we're worried, so now they're breathing 20. Uh, the SATs are 91%, so now the patient's on a 50% mask. Fever's starting to come down after some um, uh, acetaminophen administration, but the first lactate comes back at 4.2. So if you use millimoles per liter, 4.2, if you use... Um, Milligrams per deciliter, oh gosh, it's about what, 36 or so? So I'm not sure which units you use at your hospital, but this is a pretty elevated lactate. In fact, um, it's consistent with shock. So this is not good. This is not good at all. So next steps. Now we're at that point in the row. We've got a patient who's hypotensive. Do we give more fluid or do we start a presser? That's the big question. Well, as you know, in the sepsis guidelines, the first line uh, vasopressor is norepinephrine. Or do we maybe give fluid and a vasopressor? Or maybe you're not sure. And I think I'm not sure is a, honestly a really, it's appropriate answer in this situation. And the reason I say that is we don't have enough information. All I've got here is heart rate, blood pressure, a temperature, and a lactate. None of those things are going to tell me whether my patient is fluid responsive. So when I give a fluid bolus, what I want to know is did the stroke volume increase and did the cardiac output increase? That's how I know my patient is fluid responsive. You always want to know if I give a fluid bolus, what is that patient's heart going to do with the fluid? Um, are they going to improve their stroke volume or are they just going to end up third spacing that fluid? So we ended up giving another liter of fluid. I'm, I don't think it was the right thing to do, but it's what we did because it's what we always do, right? Um, except now we use stroke volume measures. But the heart rate is now down to 112. But look at this map. The patient tanks their map. So their map is 56, still breathing 18. And the temperature is 38 too. So that's coming down quite nicely. The repeat lactate comes back at 3.4. So that's still pretty darn elevated. It's heading in the right direction, but that's still pretty elevated. So next steps. Well, how many of you have ever been in this decision-making where do you give this, meaning do you give more fluid, or do you start this, a vasopressor? Because if you start a vasopressor, where does that patient need to go? The ICU. And is that a barrier many times? Honestly, it is. It's honestly a barrier often. So there are risks of under-resuscitation. So I think luckily we don't under-resuscitate patients as much as we used to, but there are definite risks of under-resuscitation. Um, altered tissue perfusion, acute kidney injury, risk of stroke, gut ischemia, multi-system organ dysfunction, and of course circulatory collapse if the patient does not get adequate fluid resuscitation, or just I should say adequate resuscitation. Now, is too much fluid detrimental? And the answer is absolutely. There are lots of issues with giving too much fluid. The patients can go into ARDS, 
They get a lot of edema. They can't mobilize. Intra-abdominal hypertension, that's actually what happened here, is this patient um, had a ruptured appendix and ended up developing intra-abdominal compartment syndrome where we had to open the patient's belly just to allow them to ventilate. Um, patients can get kidney injury from too much fluid. They can develop delirium. ICU and hospital length of stay increase with too much fluid and increased days on the ventilator. Anytime you've got a patient who's fluid overloaded, they're going to spend more time on a ventilator. So when we're giving fluids, especially in sepsis or in bleeding patients, we need to give just enough fluid and not a drop more. So how do you do that? Well, the answer is you've got to use some sort of a stroke volume measure. Now, before I talk about that, I'm going to mention a study that was published in 2017, and this was um, by, uh, sorry, published by Paul Mayer, so you might have heard of him in the vitamin C studies. But what he was able to identify, so he tapped a very large data, American database, and evaluated and asked the question, if patients get large volume resuscitations, is that associated with any untoward or bad effects? And the answer was yes. So when patients got five liters or more of fluid in the first calendar day of admission in the setting of severe sepsis or septic shock, mortality went up by 2.3% for every liter above five liters that was administered. So think about that. 2.3% increase in mortality for every liter above five liters. And you might be saying, well, those patients were sick and you know, that's why yeah, their mortality went up, but he controlled for severity of illness. So interesting. Um, the other thing was that hospital costs went up by $1,000 per liter above five liters. And that was statistically significant. So does the fluid cost a thousand bucks a liter? No. Do the complications of fluid get expensive? And the answer is yes. And so a lot of people looked at this study a few years ago and were like, holy Moses, like this is not little. This is absolutely just huge. These findings are incredible. And what they identified was that fluid is an independent risk factor for mortality. It's an independent risk factor when over five liters are administered. And um, which is kind of, it's, it's an interesting thing because you think about like, well, you know, I've taken care of a lot of patients who've gotten more than five liters of fluid in the first calendar day. But you may have heard some talk about the four phases of fluid resuscitation. And this is definitely mentioned quite a bit in the International Fluid Academy resources, where I think we're really good at rescue. We're really good at loading patients up with fluid. I think we're getting better at optimization, although I will say I do believe that there is some room to improve. So that happens within hours of presentation. Stabilization is an area where I do believe we really could use some help in avoiding over-resuscitation. And then finally, that last step of fluid resuscitation is de-escalation, meaning taking off excessive fluid. And we know that we definitely need help in that area. So this was a paper that was published out of the hospital I worked at for years in Seattle, Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. And they evaluated, it was a retrospective analysis, but I think it was really important data. They evaluated almost 250 patients who had septic shock and asking the question, are there complications of fluid overload? Um, so volume or fluid overload was defined as 
greater than 10% of the patient's admission body weight you know, at discharge. You know, well, that's kind of a common thing in my hospital. And I think it's pretty common everywhere. But the average fluid or volume overload was 12 and a half liters in these patients who had septic shock. And only about 42% of these patients received diuretics before leaving the ICU. And in the study, they were able to identify that fluid overload was associated with an inability to ambulate at discharge. And if you can't ambulate at discharge, where do you go? Usually an extended care facility or a nursing home. And so there are massive um, downward effects of fluid overload in the hospitalized patient. So should we be using stroke volume? There are great ways that are non-invasive to measure it. And one of the, the kind of things right now is, is stroke volume or should it be the sixth vital sign when you're doing or per performing uh, resuscitation in patients? And I don't know, I would argue to say yes. So when you give volume, what you want to know, um, so patient presents, they, let's, well, again, I'm going to use sepsis as an example. Um, they present, maybe they're hypotensive, but they present uh, with symptoms. And usually those patients early are on that low part of the Starling curve. Um, and on the low part, it's kind of a no-brainer. You give volume. But after that initial volume resuscitation, where is that patient on that Starling curve? And the answer most of the time is we don't know, right? Because we're not measuring. We're using heart rate, blood pressure, lactate, and urine output, and maybe uh, you know, temperature. I don't know. Temperature doesn't really tell us anything, right? But when you give fluid, what you want to know is does that stroke volume or does that cardiac output increase? And if it doesn't increase, then you shouldn't be giving more fluid. You should be starting pressors. And one of the things we're doing is we're combining this technology with the passive leg raise test. A signal that we keep seeing over and over and over again in the literature is after the first administration or the first dose of fluid, about 50% of patients are no longer fluid responsive, meaning they're still hypotensive, but they don't need more fluid. But what do we clinically do at the bedside? Often we give a lot of fluid, so maybe we should change that. So has there been a change in practice over time? Well, these are three studies from 2000, 2007, and uh, 2014. And basically what it shows is we are still over, a, you know, a 14-year span, still commonly using blood pressure to make decisions on fluid administration. Luckily, we're backing off of central venous pressure. We're not using that as much anymore from 2000 to 2014. The data are really clear. The central venous pressure does not predict fluid resuscitation. Heart rate is a poor predictor as well. And luckily, we're not relying on that as much. But we still rely heavily on blood pressure, but it's not a good uh, measure of fluid responsiveness. Stroke volume or cardiac output would be a better measure. Now, before I dig into stroke volume, I want to just briefly go over the passive leg raise test. This is not new. This is something that has been around for years and years and years. But what we will do clinically is put some sort of a non-invasive stroke volume measure on the patient. So I'm going to talk about the bioreactance device or the um, NICOM device. There are also digit sensors you can use, but what you want to do is place the stroke volume device on the patient, get a baseline with the head of the bed up, feet flat, get a baseline. Then you want to drop the head and lift the legs for about two to three minutes. And what you're doing by lifting the legs, and it has to be a passive leg raise. So if the patient helps you to lift their legs, they're going to engage their muscles, which can alter the test. 
you need to very passively lift their legs. And there are devices and contraptions you can use uh, to put under the legs so you're not killing your back. But what you're doing is you're taking the blood volume in the patient's legs and lower abdomen and you're pushing it back toward the patient's heart. So you're basically giving them a physiologic fluid bolus. It's the equivalent, if you look in the literature, it's the equivalent of about a 300 cc or 300 mil bolus. Now, if it, once you lift the legs within two minutes, if the stroke volume or cardiac output goes up by at least 10%, how should you treat that hypoperfused or hypotensive patient? You should administer fluid. However, if the stroke volume doesn't go up by at least 10%, how would you treat the hypotension or hypoperfusion? You would administer a vasopressor like norepinephrine. And it really is that simple. Um, I, th I think just clinically, it just guides us better. And I'm going to show you some recently published data that it truly does guide us in the right direction. So what are some limitations to the passive leg raise test? Well, intra-abdominal hypertension, a DVT in the leg, they don't have a leg, an amputated leg. Um, if they have a TED hose on, you should take those off first. Um, ICP issues, you probably don't want to be lifting somebody's legs. If the spine is unstable, that would be a contraindication. And if you've got a patient who has had a severe hemorrhage or has severe hypovolemia from volume loss, you're probably not going to see a change with the passive leg raise test if they have physically lost volume. So how how accurate is this passive leg raise test? Well, meta-analysis was published in 2016 asking that same question. And what they identified was that when the passive leg raise test was used with a stroke volume or cardiac measure, it scored an area under the curve of a 0.95. And from a statistical standpoint, what that means is that the passive leg raise test by the AUC or area under the curve of 0.95, it means that it's an excellent predictor. So it means it's an excellent predictor. The sensitivity and specificity is very high in predicting fluid responsiveness. Now, when you look at pulse pressure changes, so, that's, so pulse pressure is systole minus diastole, and you look at blood pressure, pulse pressure changes, um, it doesn't score as well. So it scores an area under the curve of 0.77. It's still clinically acceptable, but a stroke volume measure is far more predictive than pulse pressure changes. So again, when you give fluid, you wanna ask yourself, did I move that patient up on the Starling curve and do they still have room to move on that curve if they remain hypotensive or hypoperfused? You wouldn't do this passive leg raise test with stroke volume, measuring stroke volume changes just because you do it in the setting of hypotension or hypoperfusion. So bioreactance is a, a pretty cool tool it's, um, it's basically a technology that's completely non-invasive where you place electrodes above and below the heart. So it's almost like you make a box around the patient's heart. And the top electrodes will send out a frequency signal that over two cardiac cycles, will um, it'll measure how long it takes that signal to get across the myocardium. And so it, it basically is estimating left ventricular cardiac output. And so you'll get a cardiac output, stroke volume, and then it measures a number called TPR, total peripheral resistance, which is basically like the patient's afterload. So how vasoconstricted or vasodilated is this patient? And again, you would use this with a passive leg raise test. If you get a baseline, leg straight, baseline, 
drop the head, lift the legs, if that stroke volume increases by 10% or more, how would you treat the hypotension? You would give fluid. But if it doesn't increase by 10%, you would treat the hypotension with a vasopressor. And it really is that easy to use. So the University of Kansas back in 2017 published a before and after study using the NICOM or bioreactance technology. And what they did was they enrolled 191 patients. So 91 patients served as the before kind of control group uh, where they just got usual care where you use things like heart rate, blood pressure, lactate, whatever you've got clinically available to you to make decisions on fluid, uh, whether the patient needs fluid or not. So that was the before group. Then for the next chunk of time, so this was the after group, they placed the NICOM device or non-invasive cardiac output measurement bioreactance device on the patient and combined that with the passive leg raise test. So they started this really early in the emergency department. And what did they find? Well, a couple things. They found, again, that signal. After that first fluid bolus was administered, 50, only 53% um, of patients still needed fluid. So about half of patients no longer needed additional fluid. But what do we do clinically? We get a lot of fluid. We get way too much fluid. Um, the other thing they found in the study is when they used the non-invasive cardiac output measurements and device, when they used the stroke volume to guide resuscitation, patients got an average of 3.59 liters less fluid than those who were in the usual care group. That's a big difference. Almost four liters of fluid is a huge difference when you consider edema and ARDS and things like that. Other things they found was that the group that used stroke volume to guide management um, were on uh, almost 33 hours less time on vasopressors. They also found that the need for mechanical ventilation decreased by almost 50% when the non-invasive cardiac output and stroke volume was used to guide fluid management. That's a reduction of so the chance of being mechanically ventilated when a NICOM device was used was cut by 49%. That's massive. That's absolutely huge. And then, sorry, I kind of accidentally covered up the ICU length of stay. But the ICU length of stay was reduced by almost three days when the non-invasive cardiac output measurement was used. This is all huge. But this was a lower quality before and after study. So then what happened is this past year, the FRESH trial was published uh, just back in May. And the FRESH trial basically took that before and after study to a different level and did a randomized control trial in over 13 North American hospitals and then also in the UK. It was a non-blinded randomized control trial. It'd be very difficult to blind when you're putting equipment on a patient, but a randomized control trial where they did a two-to-one enrollment. So for every, uh, so two patients uh, would receive the NICOM for every one patient who got usual care. And they enrolled patients in the emergency department who had refractory septic shock. So they were still hypotensive after their first fluid bolus. And um, the, one of the rules was, they was that they had to get less than three liters of fluid upon enrollment. So you didn't want patients to get like six liters of fluid and then enroll them. You wanna know if you use this device early to guide management, does it make a difference? Um, and then they used the passive leg raise test to kind of guide whether a patient got fluid or got pressors in the setting of hypotension. And they followed these patients for the next 72 hours of care or until ICU discharge. Hypoperfusion was defined as a MAP less than 65, 
a patient who had persistent hyperlactemia, um, did I say that right? Lactemia, <laughs> hyperlactemia, high lactates, and um, or those patients with cryptic shock. So that would be a lactate above four without hypotension. We see that a lot in younger people. And the primary endpoint of this study was the 72-hour fluid balance. And what they found was that the group who received the NICOM device or stroke volume guidance received on average 1.37 uh, liters less fluid than those who were in the usual care group. Um, and again, a lot of patients after their uh, initial fluid bolus no longer needed fluid administration. So again, we're seeing this signal over and over and over again. Now, some secondary endpoints that they evaluated were the need for renal replacement therapy. This is mind-blowing to me. So the control group that didn't use stroke volume, 17.5% of those patients needed renal replacement therapy versus only 5.1% in the stroke volume group. Uh, mechanical ventilation, same results. They cut the need for mechanical ventilation by 50% when a stroke volume measure was used, and these both reached statistical significance. ICU length of stay was reduced by three days. Interestingly, it didn't reach statistical significance, but I think we can all agree a three-day reduction in length of stay in the ICU is clinically significant. That's a lot of ICU days, if you guys think of ICU beds and ICU days and utilization. And then more patients were discharged home when they received um, stroke volume measures to guide fluid resuscitation. So uh, to me, these results were pretty mind-blowing and really make the case that we should be using a non-invasive stroke volume measure to guide fluid resuscitation, especially in septic patients. So does this equate to any cost savings? Well, interestingly enough, the initial um, University of Kansas study demonstrated a $14,500 savings per patient that was treated with the non-invasive cardiac output measure versus those who received usual care. So pretty big difference between the groups there. So I think some key take-home points from these studies evaluating, evaluating stroke volume guidance for fluid administration was that we should be using a dynamic measure like the passive leg raise test uh, with a stroke volume measure. We know it's safe. It reduces the fluid balance in 72 hours. It reduces the total amount of fluid given less mechanical ventilation. Both studies um, cut the need for mechanical ventilation by 50%, um, less dialysis needed, and more discharges home. And to me, this is it's just a big no-brainer. We need to stop guessing on fluid administration. So there are three ongoing trials that are evaluating fluid. There's actually a lot more than that, but these are uh, three major trials that are evaluating type of fluid, how quickly you give fluid, and then liberal versus early vasopressor in patients who have sepsis. So again, I want you to think of fluid as drugs. The decision of why, which fluid, the amount you give should always be considered. Fluids are not benign. Underdosing and overdosing fluid can cause harm in patients. So the same way you would check a glucose to decide how much insulin you should give, we should be using stroke volume to decide if our hypotensive or hypoperfused patients need volume. So in conclusion, we need to dose this stuff appropriately, stop guessing, and use stroke volume as a measure to guide treatment. 
So I want to thank you all for joining this quick 30-minute session on fluids. Hopefully you learned a thing or two. Um, I'm very active on social media, so on Facebook and um, Instagram. If you're there, give me a follow. Um, if you'd like a copy of these slides, just pop me an email and I will happily send those to you. So I just want to thank you again for uh, allowing me to uh, join this conference and thanks to Baxter for inviting me. And if you've got any questions, I'll happily take them. If I'm not um, in Friday's session, I'm not able to be there. So, uh, or Thursday session, I'm sorry, I should say. Uh, so I, you can just pop me an email with questions. All right, thanks so much again. Thank you for joining us for the episode of I Connect with Baxter. All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iConnect at Baxter.com.